May God add a blessing to the reading and to the preaching of His Word. Father in heaven, as we come this evening and we look at where chapter 11 and the first part of chapter 12 fits into the context of this book of Nehemiah, I pray that you would help it to add to our understanding of Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've been keeping track of the list of names in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 11 gives us the fourth list. In chapter 12, verses 1 through 21 or so, really through about 26, gives us the fifth list. The first list came in chapter 3. I turn back there with me just for a moment. Let me re-summarize these lists of names, these categorized, these um, what we might call genealogies. In chapter 7, he lists who it is that made all of these repairs. Or chapter 3, I'm sorry. In chapter 3, he's got this list of all of these names that made all of these repairs. Maybe you'll remember when I preached on that, one of the things that chapter 3 that comes to mind for me was that the goldsmiths worked on the dung gate. I'll, I'll never forget that after studying for this, uh, to preach through this book. And then we saw another list in chapter, in chapter 7. Remember chapter 7? We had this lengthy list in chapter 7 of all of those that uh, were the first exiles that had returned back to the city in Jerusalem. And then we saw from this morning, uh, chapter 10, we saw uh, another list. It was our third list. And this is a list, this is the list of the leaders who put their name on the dotted line. Now, I, I say I don't, I don't apologize very often for preaching, but I, I wished I would have broken my text in half this morning. I realized that about five minutes till that I had way more text than I had time for. And so I wasn't able to do it justice. So let me just kind of add a little bit of a summation to the end of where we are, where we're this morning. And then I want to talk to you it's briefly this evening. Well, don't cross your fingers, but briefly this evening, uh, I want to talk to you about the context of this fourth and fifth, fifth list of Nehemiah chapter 11 and Nehemiah chapter 12. Now keep in mind that the purpose of preaching is not just to, it's not just preaching the gospel in the sense of what is the gospel message. If 2 Timothy 3.16 is true, and it's our conviction that all Scripture is inspired and profitable for the use of instruction and correction and rebuke and bringing up in righteousness, then it, it's not, we don't do Scripture justice to skip the difficult passages of Scripture that are maybe uh, seem on the surface to not be as weighty as others. Now, all Scripture is inspired, but not all Scripture is equally profitable. Do you understand when I say that, make that statement? All Scripture is inspired, but not all Scripture is equally profitable. Do you, you understand that, right? So if, if you were going to say to somebody who was struggling for the meaning of life, if, you were gonna, if they said to you, what book should I read? You wouldn't say, well, you know what? You ought to try to read Nehemiah chapters 11 and 12. Boy, that will really give you some meaning in life. You will, extremely, you will frustrate them extremely, okay? But you might say, go to the Gospel of John or go to the book of Romans or so forth. So although all Scripture is inspired, not all Scripture is equally, equally profitable. But all Scripture is profitable. And so what I want to try to do tonight is I want to try to help set the context, the profitability of Nehemiah chapter 11 and the first half of chapter 12. At the end of chapter 10, though, we're talking about this covenant. We're talking about the covenant that the leaders had set up. Remember they said in chapter 9, and they're making this agreement in writing, one of the things that the elders and I have been talking about doing is we're going to begin, we're going to begin doing something similar to this on an annual basis 
of the renewal of our church year every year. Uh, the, the elders, the deacons, and all teachers are going to come before the congregation and we're going to begin uh, committing to you to teach within a certain set of guidelines, a certain set of doctrinal convictions that everybody is going to fully understand what they are before this happens, okay? We're not going to implement this until, until, until next year. The first time it's going to be implemented is going to be uh, on the second Sunday of June in 2007 when we celebrate our 20th anniversary and we begin to implement some tradition that we hope to carry on year after year after year and other traditions that we hope to do every five years in blocks of fives. And you'll hear more about that when I preach this series that's coming up that will begin the second Sunday in July. We're, we, we get the biblical directive for this from passages just like this. So they get this covenant, they write it up. I told you what was in the covenant, that they were going to separate themselves, that they were going to... Uh, that they were going to... they were going to uh, not allow their children to intermarry, that they were going to let the land rest that they were going to be giving to one another, that, that they were going to be committed to the house of God. You know, that's one of the things that, that I think that we could spend a pretty good time talking about. What does it mean to be committed to the house of God? Now, I said this morning that the church is not 2400 North Memorial Drive. This is just bricks and sticks. This is a building. The church is you sitting right there in the pew right now. You and I, we make up the church. This is just the building. So when we talk about, there's a, there is a distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament temple. In the Old Testament temple, the Shekinah glory dwelt within that temple. Although nobody makes a place for God's, for God's uh, abode because God is spirit, but we see that in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, there is a broader understanding of this where he says the Holy Spirit's going to come and dwell you and you are the temple of God. But within this temple, we meet here in this localized place. We are privileged to live in a place where we can build a building, we can put a sign out front, and we can have it large enough that we can conjugate together with 100, 200, 300 people, and if we need more space, we just build more space. Well, this, this requires work to keep this up. One of, the covenant, one of the covenant commitments that they made from this morning's text was, we're going to work to keep it up. We're going to be involved in it. And, and you know what? It doesn't happen by accident. We don't get tents the size of this one set up over here by accident. It takes men getting up and coming in here on Saturday morning and swinging a hammer and, and pushing this thing up. And, and, and if you're like most of us, we get to set it up twice because we do it the first time for practice and then the second time for real. Uh, every year, it seems to be that we, we do that. We, we got to write some directions down or something so we can try to not do that any longer. Uh, keeping the church up to, uh, keeping the church fixed. We have a hole right outside here. Uh, if you look outside these windows over here when the service is over, you're going to see in the prayer garden there's a big hole that's been dug and, and because that's washing away. And I asked four teenagers to come in here on Friday and dig that out. And so Ryan, and I see I'll miss, I'll mess around and forget who they were now. It was Ryan and Michael and Jason and Dustin Annell. And they came in here at nine o'clock on Friday morning and they took post hole diggers and they dug this massive hole out here. Uh, unfortunately, you teenagers, it's not, it's, not, it's not done. I need to see you when the service is over. I need you again. It's not quite ready to be fixed yet, okay? But they came in here on a Friday morning. They're out of school, and they dug that out. And now when they get that dug out, then George is going to come in here, and he's got the timber out there, and he's going to fix it. It's a commitment to the house of God. You know what? We're supposed to be committed to the house of God. Well, what we come to when we come to chapter 11, as we've seen that in chapter 10 now, when we come to chapter 11, what we're coming to is the repopulating of the city. Remember, the city had been in ruins. The city had been desolate. The city walls had been torn down. The temple had been destroyed. The gates had been torn apart. And the city had, in essence, been desolated. Uh, the ladies are going through the book of Esther 
and you're kind of studying in the same in the same time period, and not all of the Jews came back to Jerusalem. Some of them chose to stay where they were. And what we see here tonight is we see the repopulating of the, of Jerusalem, and and there's three concerns. If you want to jot this outline down in in your margin, this is the outline of chapter 11, verse 1 through chapter 12, verse 26. In chapter 11, verses 1 through 24. Nehemiah is concerned with the city. In chapter 11, verses 25 through 36, Nehemiah is concerned with the land. And in chapter 12, verses 1 through 26, Nehemiah is concerned with the temple. Now, if you think about this ancient city, what were the three things, what, what are the three emphasis for the city to be alive again? Well, the city, the land, and the temple. And that's not the outline that we're going to follow this evening. Actually, what I want to do is I, w- I just want to follow some practicality from this list of, of name after name after name. What do we get from that? Because the temptation when we get to this is to just skim through it. And I'll be honest with you, when I'm, having my, when I'm doing my annual Bible reading, oftentimes I will come to these names and I will. I'll just kind of run through them and pick up where the narrative picks up and then I take off again. But there needs to be a time when we understand why are these names here. And so I want to give you a couple principles tonight on why they're here. One of the reasons that these names are here is they indicate to us that ministry is about partnership. Ministry is about partnership. If they were going to rebuild this city, they were going to rebuild this temple, they were going to rebuild these gates, they were going to re-inhabit this city. It's called the holy city. Do you see that in verse 1? Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring out uh, the tent uh, tend uh, to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. If they're going to relive in this city, it's going to take partnership. Now, let me ask you a question. I want you to imagine for a moment that you live in the surrounding area. Uh, let's just imagine for a moment that none of us have residence in Newcastle. Newcastle itself has been destroyed. It's been had been taken captive, but it's, we've come back in. We've all been coming into the city now for months. And we've rebuilt the temple, and we've reestablished all of the gates, and we got the water system working right, and we got sewage system working right. We got things working right, but we all have our own properties outside of the city. Every one of us do, okay? We all have our own little farms, we all have our own little homes, and, and let's be honest, I mean, the longer you've been in your house, the harder it is to move. That's what I've been told. I've never lived anywhere that long, but I've been told that. I've been married for 19 years last Sunday, and I think that we're in our 10th home in 19 years, our 10th residence, okay? I can't, the number of times that we've packed everything up and put it into one U-Haul, and if it wouldn't fit in a U-Haul, it was sold or given away or thrown away, Okay? But the longer you live somewhere, the harder it is to move, right? I've been to some of your homes. If some of you decide to move, I'm going on vacation the week you're moving, okay? Not to come and help you either, to, move, to be out of town when you're moving, okay? Imagine that you live in a place like that, and then I come, uh, let's say that I take the place of, of Ezra, the priest, and I come and I say to you, folks, listen, this is God's city, we're God's people, God wants us to live in the city, we need some people to live in this city. How many of you are going to raise your hand and say, well, you know what, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll pack everything and move into town. Uh, anybody going to do that? Uh, most of us aren't going to re- be real excited about doing that, are we? Uh, let me tell you why we're not going to be. Because most of us are mostly concerned about us. And we're hardly concerned about kingdom-mindedness in these situations. And they were no different. Now, there were some who said, you know what? I want the city of God to thrive. One of the things that attracted me to Memorial Baptist Church when I came and met with the pulpit committee four years ago, or almost, well, it was almost five years ago now, 
One of the things that attracted me was the commitment of the pulpit committee to this church. One of the things that was so attractive to me was that there was this core group. This church had dwindled down and it was struggling and it was hurting. It had been without a pastor for two years. But there was this core group of people, the Stearnses and the Whites, and some of you were here and you were so committed to this church, this congregation. There was such a passion for Memorial Baptist Church that this was your church and you were hanging in here until you knew that God was going to bring the right person in here. We believe that we got that going right. And that you knew that God was going to bring the right person in here and this church was going to be healthy and alive and going again. And you know what? That was attractive to me. Because in so many churches, people are only as committed as the need is being met. You know folks like that? You know folks that they're only as committed as long as their immediate need is being met. The moment they're... I'm not telling you you should never leave a church, by the way. Some people misunderstand me when I say things like that. Sometimes you should leave. Some churches you shouldn't be a part of. But what was so attractive about the core group here was that there was this desire that said, we love this church, we're staying here, we're pouring our life into this. You know what? The people in Jerusalem needed to love Jerusalem and pour their life into it. So notice how we get some of them there. He says, the, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem. What is this idea of casting lots? What is this? It's the Urim and the Thummim. It was like two dice. Now, before the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and, and, and the knowledge... and uh, They had the Holy Spirit. Believers had the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Don't misunderstand me, okay? But before the, the unveiling of the mystery and the closed canon that we have today, oftentimes the way that they would determine God's will if they were not sure about something is they would cast these lot. They would roll these dice in essence. Not a gamble, the umen and the thumen that we see in the book of Leviticus. Uh, turn with me to the book of Proverbs 16. Let me show you something. Let me show you Proverbs 16. Now, before, when you get there, before you look at it, I want to ask you a question, okay? Now, a lot, of folks, uh, a lot of folks believe in the sovereignty of God, but they believe in it in a kind of an abstract way. They don't think that... I, I, I've been hearing... I listen to AM 700 every once in a while, and I've been hearing these guys talk for the last couple of days about whether God is in baseball or not. Whether God... God he, this one guy said, God's never won a game and God's never lost a game because God's not in baseball. Oh, hold on, time out, wait a second. What else is God not in if God's not in baseball? Now, I don't mean to say that God's an owner in the angels, Okay. I don't, mean to, I don't mean to imply that, okay? He owns the angels, and, he, and if that was the case, the devil raids would never beat them, okay? I don't mean to imply that. But I do mean to say this. If God is sovereign over this earth, earth, He's sovereign over everything, including baseball. And you know what? It's not inappropriate for you to pray, Lord, let us win. And if God says no, then He says no, okay? But let me tell you something. There isn't anything that God isn't sovereign over. Now, the most simplest thing that you can do right now is reach into your pocket. Don't do it. Children, don't do it. The most simplest thing that you could do right now, though, is reach into your pocket and pull out a quarter and flip it in the air. Heads or tails, flip it in the air. Now, I was having lunch with a man one day who's on staff at NAM right now, and he just called me the day from the convention. And we were talking about the sovereignty of God, and he kind of likes to make a joke. He thinks that my view of God is too big, and so he likes to poke fun at me all the time, you know? Now, he called me from the Southern Baptist Convention, and I was teaching at IU, and I was on a break when the phone, my phone rang, and he said, Charlie, Charlie, he said, hey, listen. I just want you to know that if God has ordained it, the guy that you want to get elected is going to be elected. <laughs> and I said, David, you're exactly right. Well, that isn't what... Well, it doesn't matter whether you meant it or not. You're exactly right. Because, see, in his idea, God's not really in, in, in stuff like that. Well, let me tell you something. God is in everything. Look at Proverbs 16.33. The Lord is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Do you see that? Proverbs 16.33 The law is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from 
the Lord. Do you get that? Lamentations chapter 3, verse 37. Turn there. Just keep right on turning past Jeremiah and you'll come to Lamentations. Find Jeremiah. Turn to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 37. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Do you see that in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 37 and 38? Listen, let me tell you something. The Bible is so full, is so full of these of these examples, I think of Exodus 21:13 or Exodus chapter 4 verse 11 or Amos chapter 3 verse 6. The Bible is so full of these directives that God's supremacy over all things. So let's go back to Nehemiah chapter 11 just for a moment. Let's talk about this this partnership ministry. Here we are. We have 10 families, all right? We count them out. And we say, of the 10 families, is there one family that would like to move into the city? And all 10 of them say, "Uh-uh, not me, not me." And so the priest would come along and he would take the ermine and the, thum, the, and, the thumen, and he would say, all right, what we're going to do is we're going to cast the lot. And however the lot falls, that is the person who will go. Now, I can hear the protest today of doing something like that. Can you not hear the protest today? I don't mean if we, were, we wouldn't do things like that today. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the closed canon. But I'm saying in this day, imagine being in that day. Can you imagine the protest that people would get? I mean, listen, here's the ten families, and the lot is cast, and we finally come down, we come down to the mechanics. Now, I'm not picking on Alan and Pam, but just for example, all right, just for example, oh, forget it, we'll pick the Smiths, okay? I don't want to put the mechanics in this position. We pick the Smiths, and the Smiths say, wait a second, wait a second, now we've been on that farm for 50 years, we're not moving to town, we don't want to pick the Joneses, they've only been there for 25 years. Can you hear all the arguments that would be? But we have this much land, and they only have this much land. But we have this many kids, and they only have this many kids. Can you hear all the arguments? Let's do it again. Best two out of three. Best two out of three. But they didn't do that. You know what they did? They said, God determines, and if this is the way that God, the lot that God has given, we'll go. Somebody has to do the dirty job. Somebody has to dig out the ditch over here on the side when the sand washes it out. You know, we leave sometimes and we come and some people, uh, that, some people think that there's a toilet paper genie in the church. They, they, don't, they don't know what... I mean, how, how's that toilet paper roll get changed? It must be a toilet paper genie. There must be a trash can genie that just dumps the trash. And you know what? Not a single thing gets done by itself. Somebody partners to do it. What we see in these chapters right here with all of these names is that ministry is about partnership. Somebody has to do it. Let me tell you something else that I recognize in these chapters, and that is there's an emphasis on holiness. He says, they cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. Isaiah calls it the holy city as well. Over and over and over, Jerusalem is called the holy city. Let me tell you something. The holy city is not a holy city if it's inhabited by unholy people. What makes the holy city holy is the holiness of those that live within it. We're supposed to be the city of God as well. St. Augustine wrote a, an entire book upon it, the city of God. We're supposed to be living for a city that is not of this earth. We're supposed to be a holy people. The word in Greek is the word, uh, is the word hagios. Uh, it's holy. It's, 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 the, it's to be sanctified. It's to be set apart. It's to be distinct. And you know what? They were to be a distinct people. 
I want to tell you something. When, when their neighbors would see these people packing up and moving to Jerusalem, and they would say, you've got to be kidding me. You're going to leave the country to go to the city? I live in the city. I want to tell you something. First chance I get, I'm selling and I'm moving to the country. I'm going to tell you right now. I'm telling you right now. Listen to me. Where's Mark? Where's Mark? Mark, I'm putting my house up for sale next year. I'm telling you. I'm a prophet, okay? So when I do it, don't start thinking, oh, no, he's running off. Okay? I'm prophesying right now. I'm putting my house up for sale next year and I'm moving to the country. You know why? Because I can't stand living in the city. I want to shoot my bow and arrow. All right? I, I can't shoot my bow and arrow unless I stick it in my neighbor's house. Okay? Now, I don't mind sticking it in one neighbor's house, but the other neighbor's house, I don't want to stick it in her house. Okay? All right? Here they are. They're living in the country and they're going to sell that place and they're going to move to the city. And the neighbors would say, why are you doing that? And you know what they say? Because we worship God, and it's God's city, and God has put upon our hearts to go and do it. And we want to be obedient to God. Let me ask you, what sacrifice is there that you're asked to do that you won't do? You know, some folks, I mean, and for some folks, the storm has got to be perfect to get them to work. It's got, they've got to get their classroom. They've got to have things their way. Everything's got to be their way to get them to work. Some people come to church not looking for what they can do, but making an excuse for every reason why they do nothing. I've heard it all. I've heard folks say that they won't serve in the nursery because they've already raised their kids. Well, who was helping keeping your kids when you were raising them? I've heard folks say they don't come to work days because they work every other day throughout the week. I've heard folks talk about how what they can and they can't do. Let me tell you something. There are very few professional builders in the church. It didn't take professional builders to smear paint on the wall. It doesn't take professional builders to dig up plants or to cut the grass or to pull weeds or to set up a tent. You know what it takes? It takes a few people coming together with one leader and, and working together to do God's work for God's name, for God's glory. The holy city, holy people doing a holy task for a holy God. I'll tell you something else that I recognize from these couple chapters, and that is that there's two types of service. There's two types of service. Look at verse 2. The people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Now, is that a contradiction of verse 1, that they cast lots? No. Two different types of people. You see, for if one set a group of ten, they would say, is there anybody here who want to go? One family said, you know what? We've always been talking about moving to the city. We'll go. They get to another group of ten and say, does anybody here want to go? And they say, nope, let's get the, let's get the Uman and Thurman out. Let's cast lots. Okay, Sid Wells, you're it. All right, we're going to do it. They get to another group of ten and somebody say, no need to cast the lots. We've been talking about it. We're going to go. There was these volunteers. So what you have then is you have two types of people moving to the city. Those that are drafted and those that volunteer. You know, you see that same thing in the Bible with, with uh, prophets. Can you think of a prophet who volunteered? Here am I. Send me. Isaiah. Isaiah was a volunteer, wasn't he? He saw God in His holiness and he, heard, and he overheard a holy conversation in heaven and God says to the angels, who are we going to send? And Isaiah says, hey, I'm not much, but if you'll have me, I'll go. But then there's Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Jeremiah doesn't want to preach. He says, I didn't want to go. He said, I didn't want to say anything, but there was a fire within my bones if I didn't go. God says to Jeremiah, God calls Jeremiah, and Jeremiah says, Why are you calling me? I'm not eloquent in speech. He kind of had the Moses thing, you know. He knew the story of Moses. It didn't work for Moses, it didn't work for Jeremiah either, see? Why are you calling me? And God says, Because I have called you from the womb. There's two types of service, see? There's those that volunteer and those that get drafted. Let me ask you something. If you get drafted to do something, will you go? Will you do it? When you're asked to do something, will you do it? Will you do it for the body of Christ? Will you labor? Will you be inconvenienced? Or do you ever allow yourself to be inconvenienced for bigger things than your immediate gratification? 
The Bible gives us a good example that there were those that were inconvenienced and there were those that volunteered. Let me tell you another thing. There's a variety of work to be done. There's a variety of work to be done. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. Sarah, the son of Hilkai, the son of Meshulam, the son of Zadok, the son of Meroth, the son of Ithub, the leader of the house of God. So they had to have leaders in the house of God. Verses 16 and 17. And Shebethai and Jezebed from the leaders of the Levites who were in the charge of the outside work of the house of God. Do you get that? The groundskeepers in charge of the outside work. There's, there's a variety of work that's got to be done. And then we go on down and we see that uh, Asa, who is the leader in beginning the thanksgiving at prayer. And he, there, there's all, if you read through this text, if you kind of work through the names and struggle through it, what you pick out over and over and over is that there's a variety of work to be done. You know what's interesting? We're going to have vacation Bible school this week. Some of you, some of you are, have got jobs in your, in your life as such that you don't have a chance to maybe to volunteer to do vacation Bible school or to do the props. Well, let me tell you something. Uh, a person cut, uh, put every one of these doilies on a, on a piece of fishing line and hung them from that ceiling. They didn't, it didn't just happen. Uh, people showed up here and took the overhead and traced the polar bears. Now, I told Sierra tonight, I said, Sierra, those polar bears are out there, and just for the benefit, we've made that water as cold as ice. She didn't believe me, though. Somebody traced those and painted those and cut those out. Somebody's traced this eagle and painted it and cut it out and hung it from the roof. You know what? There's a variety of work to be done. Maybe you're not the person that can trace and cut out, but you know what? Maybe you'll be the person that's going to be upstairs when we end this service stacking up these pews and moving them because they've all got to be moved. These banners, we didn't buy these banners. There's women that began meeting in July to have a banner ready for Christmas. And then as soon as Christmas is over, they begin meeting again to have a banner ready for Easter. And they meet here on Saturdays and they meet here in the evenings and they hand cut and they hand sew and glue and mend every bit of the detail. We didn't buy these. They weren't made in China. We didn't get them at Walmart. They were made by women right here downstairs. Everything in the church that gets done gets done by a person. There's a variety of work to be done. There isn't anybody in the church that we don't need. We need you. A church our size, trust me, we need you. We need you on work days. We need them on work days, don't we, Charlie? We need them on work days. We need them on work days, don't we, Bob? We're putting up fence or doing something like that. We need you. And you know what? You don't have to be the best. You don't have to be the youngest, the strongest, the smartest. You don't got to be the job boss. You know what we need? Sometimes we just need you to show up. And even if you're not the best at it because you're here, you know what? There's something about encouraging when you show up to a work day or you show up to vacation Bible school work night or you show up during VBS. Let me tell you something about VBS. This week, if you're not working in VBS, you still ought to be here. You ought to be here. You ought to walk around here and you ought to pat children on the head and you ought to say, Jesus loves you and we're glad that you're here. And you ought to walk up to the Sunday or to the VBS teacher and you ought to say, you're doing a good job. I'm glad that you're doing this. What can I do to help you tonight? If you can't be here but 15 minutes, you ought to show up. You know why? Because you're a member of this covenant community of Christ and we ought to come and encourage one another. There's a variety of work to be done. There isn't anyone that can't do something in the body of Christ. That's what we see when we read these kinds of chapters. Variety of work to be done. Let me tell you the last thing that we see though. We see the important of the importance of predecessors. That's the last point. It's the biggest point. Not any longer than the others, but it's the biggest. The importance of predecessors. You know what a predecessor is? This morning I was talking about James Pettigrew Boyce. I, I, I mention these names sometimes, and some of you guys, some of y'all, you don't know who they are. I understand that. I remember whenever I went to Bible college, 
Uh, when I went to Bible college, I was in an English class, and my English professor's husband was a director of missions. Have I told you this story? Shake your head if I've told you this story. I don't want to tell you it again. All right. She's the director of missions. You know, you know what we call them, right? We call them up here. We call them, what do we call them? A, we, we abbreviate that. How do we abbreviate it? D-O-M. That's right. Now, we had moved from Alabama to Florida. Now, when we moved to Florida, they had what they called an impact fee. And that means that if you're coming from out of state, we're glad to see you because we're going to sock it to you with money for license plates. It's like $500 per car. Well, we're lowly college students. My wife was a social worker for the state of Florida, making a whopping twelve or $13,000 a year. God, we went to college for that, aren't you? They, they don't pay the social workers nearly what they, what they deserve, okay? And I'm working two jobs, and so what we decided to do was get a post office box in Alabama. I know, the ethic of this is terrible. Get a post office box in Alabama and not buy Florida tags until we had the money and wait and see if maybe we moved to Alabama. Well, I go to class my first week and I meet my English teacher and she's talking about her husband, the DOM, the DOM. But I'm not hearing DOM. You know what I'm hearing? I'm hearing DMV, DMV, Department of Motor Vehicles. My husband's the head DOM of this county. I'm thinking that he's the head of the Department of Motor Vehicles of this county over here. And I get to thinking, my goodness, I bet she's going to be looking to see if I got Florida tags. And so I just kind of sink down in my seat and I try to not be recognized. And every time I see her on campus, I back my car in, you know. And so one day she gets to talking and she gets to talking about, she gets to talking about, uh, about them going back to Tanzania as missionaries. And I said, well, why are you going to Tanzania as a missionary if your husband works at the Department of Motor Vehicles? She said, my husband doesn't work at the Department of Motor Vehicles. And I said, well, you said he was a DMV. She said, I said he was the DOM. I didn't know. Now, many of you have heard of Adrian Rogers and Jerry Vines and C.S. Criswell, or W.A. Criswell by now. I never heard of any of those names. I didn't know any of those names. I didn't know who any of those people were. You know what? I began studying. I want to know who they were. I want to know where we'd come from. In Bloomington, there's a, there's a, there's a um, cemetery called Knight Ridge Cemetery. I found it online. My uncle was telling me about it. And about a third of everyone that's buried in there is a Shields. And one of these days, I'm going to go down to Knight Ridge, and, they're all, and they are my relation. I'm going to go down there, and I'm just going to walk through there and see what all Shields are buried in there because it's my heritage. You know why all these names are in the Bible? Because of the heritage. Because these are the names of the people that sacrifice for God. Let me tell you something, church. We should be aware of those that have made great sacrifices and what sacrifices they've made for our faith. We should know who Luther is, not because we should worship Luther. We should worship the God that Luther worshipped. We should know who Calvin is. We should know who Zwingli is, and John Gill, and John Owen, and John... I don't know how we got all these Johns, but John Bunyan, and William Poole. And we should know who Richard Baxter is, and we should know who these great reformers were, that many of them gave their lives. William Tyndale. We should know who William Tyndale was. We should know, we should know who, these, who these men were that fought great battles so that we would have the freedom tonight to sit here in a church with a Bible in your lap, in your own language, that you can leave here and take home tonight. There, it was not too long ago in the scheme of eternity that men and women in the world could not do that. Only the priests could do it. If you look at pictures of the, of the, of the Middle Ages, you'll see a Bible on a pulpit, a big Bible on a pulpit, and you'll see a chain on that Bible, and you'll see it go down to the floor. And it was there to paint a picture that only the man qualified to stand behind the desk was qualified to read the book. Well, you know what? There was hundreds 
and thousands of people that gave their lives fighting for us to have the freedom to have the scriptures in our own language, in our own lab. When we read all of these names, these names are the names of predecessors that fought a fight. Let me tell you something else. If you don't know the battles that have been fought previously, you're prone to make the exact same mistakes. If you don't know the battles that were fought previously, you're prone to make the exact same mistakes. You, you name any cult today, any Christian cult today, and I can take you a direct line back to one of the church councils that addressed the heresy that they've adopted and that they put forth today as their belief. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Oneness Pentecostalism that rejects the Trinity. You name any of these and we can take them back to one of the church councils or multiple of the councils that address the heresy of their error. If we do not know where we've come from, we are bound to repeat the same mistakes. Now you say, is that biblical that we do that? I want to turn you two places and I'm done tonight. Hebrews chapter 11 first. Hebrews chapter 11. We're not going to read all of chapter 11, but I want, to point, I want to point something out. And then I want to close in chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 11 is called the Faith Hall of Fame. For those that believe that you were saved by some other way than faith in the Old Testament, then you must take Hebrews chapter 11 and cut it from your Bible. Because all of these men are named and have been saved by faith in the Old Testament. And he calls them by name. He talks about Abel in verse 4 and Enoch in verse 5, about Noah in verse 7. And then he talks about Moses in verse 23. And he talks about, he talks about all of these people until he gets down to a point, Gideon, Barak, this is verse 32, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets... And then he begins to talk about people that he doesn't even name, but incidences that occurred by them, who by faith conquered kingdoms. Now listen, if you're familiar with your Bible and you read Hebrews chapter 11, you can put a name on these people. Who by faith conquered kingdoms, in, in most cases, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. Who's that? There you go. Um, shut the mouths of lions. Quench the power of fire. Who's that? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Right? escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead, Elijah, Elijah, right? Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others, and he goes on and talks about others, who were, even though they were had the same faith, were defeated, in the sense that they were killed and scourged and imprisoned and so forth. But here's the point. They, he gives us these names, so we would know the history of what they've done, so that we would recognize in our own walk that sometimes we're going to shut the mouth of the lion and sometimes we might be scourged. Sometimes we might get those who've been given a death sentence of cancer back to life. And sometimes we might go to their funeral. We need to know our predecessors. And in chapter 13, verse 7, the same author gives us this admonition. Remember those who led you who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, in other words, if their conduct matched their confession, what's he say? Imitate them. Is that what he says? Imitate them. Is that what he says? That's not what he says. He says what? Imitate their faith. You know why all those names are in Nehemiah? Because they were predecessors that were worthy to be mentioned. Because they were men and women of faith. They were sacrificial in the way that they lived. They followed God, even if it meant 
selling the farm and moving to the city. It did not matter what the cost was because the kingdom of God and eternity was more important than their immediate gratification and their personal, individual happiness. Sometimes we must put aside our personal wants for the good of the whole body. I'll bring you full circle from this morning now. That's what Sunday worship is about. It's about the whole, not the individual. That's why the emphasis is on the congregation reciting confession of sin. That's why the congregation recites the Lord's Prayer of the 23rd Psalm. That's why the congregation confesses the Heidelberg Catechism. That's why there's this congregational part in it. Why? Because God is bringing us together corporately as a body to worship Him corporately, not individually on this day. May we be the kind of people that leave a legacy for our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren if the Lord tarries His second coming so they can imitate our faith. Let's close in prayer.